Well, if you assume (laughs) that everyone is marking all their good information as good all of the time, cue for a second laugh, if you assume universal deployment, then everything that's not marked as good is bad, right? But it doesn't work like that, does it? Because somewhere on the planet, someone's not marking it at all. And indeed, most systems aren't deployed all at once in a big bang. It's all piecemeal. I'll do it. You might do it a week later. You might do it a year later and so on. So some information is marked good. A lot of information isn't marked at all. How are you meant to tell what's bad? You're listening to Ping, a podcast by Abenik discussing all things related to measuring the internet. I'm your host, Robbie Mitchell. Abenik's chief scientist, Jeff Houston, joins us today for his monthly chat, as does Abenik's George Michelson, who will soon be taking over the mic here at Ping as I take up a position at the Internet Society. Jeff, George, thanks for joining us on Ping. Good morning, Robbie, and good morning, George. It may not be morning for you, dear listener, but it certainly is morning for me. Good morning, Jeff, and good morning, Robbie, and thanks for that introduction. You're leaving a very big pair of shoes to fill. An interesting chapter. I think the shoes will fit nicely, George, and I look forward to seeing the direction you take the show. So today we're talking about routing security, a topic that you've both been involved in at a technical level and written quite a lot about on the APNIC blog over the years. I'd have to admit, Robbie, that myself and George Michelson are part of the implicated parties that designed a lot of the current framework used in the secure routed system, the RPKI version of of secured routing. And so this is not exactly taking the view of an unbiased observer, but that doesn't stop me from from looking at it going, is it fit for purpose and does it work? And and that's where I want to get to today with those kind of quite challenging questions. But can we start by pulling all the way back we're in Australia, and if you had a pulse, you know, if you were vaguely a sentient being over the last few weeks, you would have heard about the Optus data leak, where literally the personal details of millions of ordinary Australians, people who had mobile phone subscriber services, their details were part of a data leak. And while I don't want to get into that per se, what I want to sort of draw out from that is the internet is actually a terribly bad place. It really is. Toxic, as you often put it. Toxic. It glows in the dark. It's horrible. And this is not the research project of the 1980s. This is not, you know, let's all trust each other and and everyone can rely on everyone else doing the right thing. This is a remarkably hostile environment where if you happen to leave even one door, the virtual door, slightly ajar, all kinds of toxic sludge appear bursting through the door and, you know, your toast and all your data. And so we can't work in an environment where you assume a benign, friendly, trusting place. Everything gets attacked all of the time. It just is. And this is something that is part of the architecture of today's internet. We simply have to assume this, right? But That means we've got to actually understand trust. And as ever, that question, simple, what's trust, 
becomes really very, very hard. Do you think I'm Jeff? You look like Jeff. (laughs) There you go. I look like it. Um, I probably even sound like Jeff. Yeah, you sound like it. That's all you know. And I'm sure Google's AI engine could whip up a new version of Jeff any second now and play this back at you and you'd be none the wiser. How do you tell? How do you trust? What is this whole issue of veracity on the internet? Because while we're looking at each other through video, the listener just hears my voice. Why is it me? How can you tell? Yeah. What grounds their belief they really should believe you are who you say you are? Right. Now, this is not a new problem. It came about in the old days of paper and letter where I could send a very important document to somebody else. Please withdraw all my money from my bank account. And the receiver would simply go, but it's just a random bit of writing. How do I tell it's genuine? And over in the law profession, in in sort of the real world, we had this system of public notaries where a trusted set of people, notaries, who'd actually gone through a process of saying, I'm a good person and I never lie, and had registered themselves as such, would take my document and literally notarize it, place their stamp and their credentials on the document. This was written by Jeff. Now, I could then send that to you, and you could then either go to a notary or look up the notary that that stamped mine and satisfy yourself that if you trusted the notary, you could trust that it was me. And so we bought into the real world this notion of transitive trust, that you might not know me, but as long as, if you will, I had presented myself to a notary and you had you know, presented yourself to a notary and the notaries trusted each other, we could actually instill some version of trust which was good enough, right? Now, the question is, how do you do that digitally? Because... I wouldn't say it's a perfect system, it's not, but it's kind of worked good enough for the rest of the world. So we bring in the entire gory world of wacko mathematics, cryptography, and key pairs. Now, this was actually, I suppose, work that was done originally in two places, the UK with GCSE and in America with uh, God. The only three mathematicians in modern the modern life that ever became millionaires, Ron Rivers, Adelman, and uh, God, who was the last one? Shamir. Shamir. And that poor kid doing his PhD in London who found the same mathematics and GCHQ said, brilliant, here's your PhD. Now never talk about this again. <laughs> right. So anyway, both of them invented this weird system of public-private key cryptography. Now, why am I talking about this? because they have some very strange properties. I actually generate two magic numbers. They're both very, very big. And if I'm using a system called RSA, three aforementioned mathematicians, they're actually composite numbers, which are the product of two primes. But they're very, very big. And because they're very, very big composite numbers, prime factorization will take the entire world's computers probably an infinite amount of time if the number's big enough, right? So these are numbers which are kind of hard to devolve into their factors. 
Now, I said it was a pair. And you actually devise a very clever algorithm that if I use one of these numbers to encrypt, to change a block of data into a different block via some algorithm of such, and the algorithm is quite public, but the key, the value I use to perform that is the critical bit. Because if I encrypt it with one of these numbers, only the other number can decrypt it back to the original. Every other number doesn't work. So let's say I encrypt something with my private key. One of those numbers that I hold as a closely kept secret, nobody else knows but Jeff. And I publish the other key value. Put it out on the door. Publish it everywhere. My public key. Now, if you get a block of encrypted text from me that I've signed with my private key, then all of a sudden, two things are known. One, my public key decrypts it. So you get back the original message, and anyone who sees the message on the fly can't unless they knew I sent it. So to all intents and purposes, it's a secret unless you know I did it. And secondly, as long as no one else has my private key, only I could have sent it. Non-repudiation. Because you don't know my private key, you can't create that message. So this is kind of cool. And maybe I've dispensed with the notaries completely. I can create a message that only I could have sent, and that when you receive it, you know that only I could have sent it. And in essence, you need to know it was me in order to decrypt it. Yes, but how do you know it's my public key? Trust the system. Ah, that, that's the weak point. So I now need to call in the notary again. Hi, notary. I'm Jeff. Here's my passport, my 100 points of ID, blah, 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 blah. And here's my public key. You, dear notary, can publish the value of my public key and associate it with my identity. So now I've got all the elements I kind of need. What if I wanted to send you, George, a super secret message that only I could have sent? I'm up for that. Okay. <laughs> what I'll do is firstly encrypt my message using my private key. But I now go one step further. I then, because I'm sending it to you, encrypt it with your public key. So it's now doubly locked. And I send it to you, George. Now, anyone else who sees the message has a problem because they don't know George's private key. So they can't even unlock the outer lock. Only George can see it, can see the message in terms of opening up that first lock. And then when George gets it, he goes, ah, I've unlocked the first part of this, but here's an encrypted text I will use Jeff's public key to unlock that. Bingo, there's the message. Only George could have received it and only Jeff could have sent it. Now, the weak point, of course, is knowing George's public key and Jeff's public key. So for that, we have these equivalent of real-world notaries called certification authorities. And their job, really, is just to register the value of public public keys. That's all. Some of these certification authorities work in terms of identity, big area. Some of them work in terms of domain names. 
westpac.com.au, myfavoritebank.com, whatever. What you want to know is who holds that domain name? So when I go to a website with that domain name, I'm reaching a particular bank and not just anyone at random. Well, the whole CA system is meant to do that because, in essence, if I can associate a key pair with that domain name and use the bank's public key to send data to that website, then only the bank's private key can see my username, password, blah, 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 right? And in essence, what I'm trusting is that the CA has been doing the right job. So who oversees the CAs, Jeff? Ah, the Internet Governance Committee. That's a very small committee. (laughs) There is no Internet (laughs) Governance Committee. True. No one. So in essence, what we get is little bands of trust. So in the web browser world, there's this weird shadowy forum called the CAB Forum, the CA Browser Forum, and it's a closed cartel. A person, a party, an entity that wants to be a certification authority can knock on the door, and there are a bunch of rules. Rule number one, you can never lie. Rule number two, here are the procedures you will use to issue a public key certificate. Blah, blah, blah. Bunch of rules. Now, if I'm admitted to that club, every browser who also participates in that club lists me and thereby the certificates I issue as trusted. Sounds good? Mostly good. There's a but coming, isn't there? <laughs> yeah, mostly horrible. Um, <laughs> the problem is that many Certification authorities do this job for evil money, and and money corrupts everything. And there have been incidents in the past. There was the ill-fated Symantec episode where Symantec, who was a trusted CA, decided to issue a certificate for the fake domain name example.com and certified it. So, you know, it's not as good as you think. And there are about 800 to 1,000 different folk who issue certificates that are inside the trust circle. But if you squint a bit, it mostly works. <laughs> and that's, that's what keeps the internet running. Fine. So we've now got this trust system and we've got the routing system. Now, the routing is intended to get packets from me to you, right? Each packet is not like a car. It doesn't know where it's going. It simply has a destination address. And the internet's almost more like a railway system, fixed points that connect up stuff. And each packet, by listing its destination, informs the network as to each local switching decision. So what we have is this vast distributed algorithm, blindingly simple but blindingly complex at the same time, that provisions all the internet switches with the knowledge of every single possible destination, right? Who's in charge of routing? Nobody. The same Internet Governance Committee as the last one. No one's in charge. Literally no one's in charge. It's actually a free-for-all. And everybody has just one thing that they've got to do the same as everyone else run the same routing protocol, BGP. But after that, 
It's free range. Do your damnedest. Now, we mentioned a few minutes ago that the internet's a scary bad place. Really scary bad. And if Jeff can enter into the world of routing, and Jeff's not a nice person, Jeff can start advertising reachability to places that he shouldn't. Now, Jeff might want to suck traffic to look at it as it goes past and then deliver it to the right place because I have some wonderful encryption material that I can decode people's secrets. Or, if Jeff is even worse, he might have an eye to wanting to steal money, steal people's ether wallets, steal Bitcoin, steal banking credentials, steal a whole bunch of stuff. Now, who's going to stop me? Well, apart from the routing police, there are none, or the governance committee, there is none. The answer is kind of no one. And that's scary, right? That's just scary as hell that the internet's basic mechanism to actually push packets from one part to another is trust. Because, you see, the routing protocol, BGP, the Border Gateway Protocol that I talked about, is both hideously complicated and phenomenally naive at the same time. I speak BGP, right? I'm going to tell you, my adjacent neighbour, everything I know. And I'm going to believe it because you said it. (laughs) You got it. And you're going to tell me everything you know. And you're going to believe it because I said it. And if something you tell me is better than what I already knew, I will replace my data with yours. Hey, hey, Jeff, I can get I can get to that Robbie guy a lot faster than anyone else. Done. I'm going to send all my packets to Robbie to you. Wacko, I'm in. So that's, that's BGP. You now know BGP. I tell you everything I know, you tell me everything you know, and we trust each other. Whoa! Now, obviously, this has a few problems. And while... Robbie, George, and Jeff can set up a fine BGP network. The real internet is, of course, a little bit larger than that. Only a little. Only a little. Today, there are about 75,000 separate networks who all trust each other. Literally. Because no one's in charge. Anyone can tell anybody anything as long as it's down adjacent pipes. That's, That's the only bit. That's the protocol. So... Do all of these folk run extremely competent, reliable networks? Well, no. (laughs) I don't know about you, but I find typing on a keyboard very challenging. I make a lot of fluffs. Now, that's okay when it's just me and my laptop, but when I'm talking to a router configuring BGP, watch out. And I'm not the only one. But Jeff, it kind of gets better because even if you say, ah, but I've got a robot running my network, if you type the fluff into the robot and it repeats it to every one of your routers, you just make the same thing happen everywhere instantly. Well, that's right, because part of the issue with BGP is it's designed to push this information around the network stunningly quickly. Everyone learns this stuff inside of two minutes worldwide. So if I say, I can reach Google better than anyone else, well, that's actually a bad one because Google's maybe better protected than most. But inside two minutes, if the rest of the world's prepared to believe me, wow, 
I'm there. So let's just look at where we are, right? BGP provisions every BGP speaker with all of the routes for all of the internet all of the time. It isn't provision just in case, it's provision in advance, sorry. It's not react to the packet, it's everybody has to know all the information all of the time. So when I trust you, I don't just trust you when you told me it, I trust it for the lifetime of that data. What's the lifetime of routing information? Well, oddly enough, it's until you tell me otherwise. I trust you forever. Wow, that's scary. You mean, not only are you not telling me lies, but you're never going to tell me a lie, that the truth you told me is now true over time. Geez, you know, I didn't realize we were that closely related. This trust is absolute. Now, not only is this sort of bilateral trust absolute, but I'm going to tell all my mates who are going to tell all my mates who are going to, who are going to. So this entire trust is now universal, which is, again, scary because those 75,000 networks belong to an awful lot of people that you would well do to look very squinty-eyed at because, you know, they're not all nice people. The other thing, is that the absence of information is actually as important as its presence. What if you tell me something, George, and I don't tell my neighbours? You could do that. It might be a rational decision or it might not. The thing is, I can't know. You can't know. So all my neighbours now, how do I get to George? And I'm going, I'm not telling. And they can't get to George. So not only do you need to know what information is good, you need to know when the absence of information is good. And signing information and checking its veracity is, is one thing. Checking that the absence of information is also true is actually a mind-boggling step into something that most security systems have a very, very hard time about knowing. And lastly, the last piece of more challenges involved, but I just want to make sure you all understand that securing the routing system isn't just a PhD. It probably even isn't the work of one lifetime. This is a really, really hard problem. Because you see, the next problem is there's no evil bit. You can't mark bad information as bad, right? All you can do is mark good information as good. So when you get a piece of information that isn't marked at all, what are you meant to do? Well, if you assume <laughs> that everyone is marking all their good information as good all of the time, cue for a second laugh, if you assume universal deployment, then everything that's not marked as good is bad, right? But it doesn't work like that, does it? Because somewhere on the planet, someone's not marking it at all. And indeed, most systems aren't deployed all at once in a big bang. It's all piecemeal. I'll do it. You might do it a week later. You might do it a year later and so on. So some information is marked good. A lot of information isn't marked at all. How are you meant to tell what's bad? <sighs> Difficult problem. Secondly, performance. Now, I said this was scary maths, and it is. 
And the problem is you've got to make the problems hard enough that an attacker can't solve whatever problem is being set up, prime number factorization, elliptical curves, whatever maths you're using to generate those keys, needs to be hard enough that if I don't have the right piece of knowledge, it'll take all the computers, all the time in the universe not to solve it. It doesn't mean it's not solvable at all. It just means it's so difficult we can't do it. But these kinds of difficult problems, even if you have the right information, get harder to solve as we make them, if you will, more impenetrable to the inexorable march of computers. So if you're on the good side trying to prove it is correct, heading to the good path, that's not free, is it? That has a cost. That's not free. We used to take relatively small numbers to do prime factorization you know, a thousand bits. But the good folk at the NIST Bureau, National Institute of Standards of Technology in the US, tell us 1024-bit numbers for prime factorization. Nah, I can solve this with an NVIDIA board in a couple of seconds. So the problems get harder to resist casual cracking. What that means is that it takes longer even when you have it. Now, You know what I said before, BGP, 200-odd seconds to promulgate the information around the world? But what if everyone has to crack the problem because it's encrypted and spend a few minutes? All of a sudden, it's not 200 seconds, it's 200 minutes, 200 hours, or, oh, here's a piece of routing information, come back next week, because performance is compromised. So what you want is to actually make this stuff work blindingly fast, yet be secure. Oops, really difficult. And you know those 75,000 folk who are playing in this game? Well, next year it's going to be 78,000, and the year after, 80,000 to 85 to 100,000. We don't know when the internet stops growing. Oops. So all of this gets hard, right? It just is a big problem. So we've now laid the landscape that we have this single piece of technology, which is the world security for the digital environment, public-private key cryptography. There is no plan B, right? So if you have some bright idea, good luck, but, you know, it ain't. Secondly, we have a routing system which is fragile, delicate, and can be pushed off the edge amazingly quickly but relies solely on mutual trust. And we have a malicious environment, a malicious environment where weaknesses are hideously exploited. For example, I notice that you're my parent domain in the DNS, and you're not doing a very good job, Robbie. When I want to redelegate my domain, you're not doing a very good check. I find a victim, George, and I use a routing attack to impersonate him and say, hi, Robbie, can you change the name service for George's domain? And you go, sure, you look like the right IP address, done. And then I go to a certificate authority saying, hey, give me a certificate for George. And it goes, well, the DNS looks good. It's all even signed with DNSSEC. Wonderful. Here's your certificate. Now, I'm George. And I've even got the padlock on my browser. I'm really George. And you didn't have to persist in an attack to do it. You had to do it for a window 
to make someone sign over you. So it's not like there's a persisting problem the rest of the community can pick up on. Right. So I get rid of the routing perversion because the DNS is now done. The DNS now points to my website. Nothing funny going on now, but I'm you. Oops. Oddly enough, that's really hard to get out of. Really hard. Because I really do look like you. And, you know, this never happens on the internet. Yeah, right. All the time. So bad and scary that you can attack parts of it, even bits like the DNS, and then build up the sort of substantive framework to impersonate someone else. So what we need to do, in theory, is secure routing. Because if all of this comes from being able to send packets to somewhere other than where they should go, what we need to do is make sure the routing system actually can't be corrupted. Now, what's truth in routing? Oh, my God. We don't know. Hi, I can reach 10.0.0.1. No, you can't, Jeff. Yes, I can. No, you can't. Yes, I can. What's the truth of this? So all of a sudden, we kind of have this problem about ground truth in addresses, things you can reach via routing. And we need to build up a framework that talks about what's an address and why do you think it's yours? That's kind of taking a step back from routing though, isn't it? It's moving one step behind routing to the delegation process and saying, if you want to start putting trust into routing, you've got to believe the person who has authority to say what should be done with the address. Right, because in essence, what you're trying to do is not secure the channel over which the routing protocol works. Look, George, I know it's you, that's fine. But you're telling me information about addresses and you might not have originated that information. You're just passing on a rumor. And what I would like to know is, is the information you're telling me about addresses the real deal? Are these about addresses that are real addresses, not just some invented number that you made up to fool me? Can I show an authority that says he's entitled to make declarations about these addresses? What the declarations are? That's a problem that's kind of out there. But who can say it, whatever it is? Could we at least establish that? Right. And we did the same thing with domain names. Why is that your domain name and not someone else's? Ah, a certificate. But what does that certificate really say? It says that the owner of that key pair had gone through the domain name delegation process and the domain registrar, I think that's the right term, doesn't really matter, gave them the exclusive right to use that domain name and I am willing to, if you will, certify a key pair of the domain holder to say that's their domain and nobody else's. And so we actually did the same with addresses because there are these five bodies, regional internet registries, that hand out IP addresses. And what we used to do, <laughs> it just sounds so primitive now when you say it back again, is that we used to write this down. Originally, John Postel wrote it down in a pen and paper notebook. Great, but so what? And if you had a dispute, you both had to fly over and visit John and visit his notebook. And Oh, you wrote that down. I must be lying. 
So we ended up going, let's do a better version of a notebook. What? An Excel spreadsheet. (laughs) (laughs) It was. And it had a public presentation called the Who Is Protocol. And if you asked in ASCII over an open, rather insecure protocol, who has this address? They would reply with the details of the organization that received those addresses. Meaningless ASCII lies. And anyone could sit in the middle and go, twiddle, twiddle, change, change. They're not Georges, they're Jeffs, they're, they're Robbies. And no one would be any the wiser. And we thought, oh God, this is horrible. And as the world became both more sophisticated and more evil, we thought we'd apply the same PKI model, this public key model, into addressing. And so over some years, and here's where George and Jeff got implicated. Guilty. Guilty. (laughs) We spent some time actually crafting the public key system, the public-private key system, the certification system, to actually allow the holder of an address to generate a public-private key pair and to have the registry that gave them that address publicly notarize there's that word, publicly notarize that the holder of that key pair has that address right now. And here's the key value. And it's quite important in this that the only part they were really notarizing is the holder of the key pair, because we are not as registries in a position to notarize that you actually are Jeffco or Robbieco or the Bank of New South Wales we're not in the business of certifying your identity. We're certifying that you held the key that holds control of the addresses. And if I close my eyes and sniff a bit, it smells a lot like blockchain, doesn't it? it smells a lot like Bitcoin because it, it really doesn't say who you are. It just says you have that address. The same as Bitcoin says, I don't care who you are. That key pair says that money's yours. Well, in this case, the key pair says that address is yours. But I digress, and and let's not talk about that too far because the answers aren't exactly assuring. Very wise. (laughs) But now we've got this system of public-private keys where the holder of a key says, that's my address, and the person that gave them that address, the RIR, whatever, is prepared to say, yeah, we're publishing that public key. We agree. So if you go and say, well, is that really them? The RIR says, sure, here's the key that I certified. It's the same key. We're in business. So what can I use with this? I have to sort of digress ever so slightly and talk about a digital signature. Take an arbitrary letter, a block of ASCII text, you know, a thing. And what I can do is actually do a funny thing called a hash where I can reduce the text down to a small and manageable size. Now, many different blocks of text might reduce to the same hash value, small and manageable size. But given a hash value, it's actually remarkably hard to generate a block of text that matches it. So in some ways, the hash is the essential signature of that original block of text because it's hard to fake it. Not impossible, just hard. And a lot of this stuff is revolves around hard. But I go one step further. I throw that hash value into a mixing machine, whirr, and I throw in my private key, 
Whirr. So now the hash function only works if you use my public key and the same well-known hash function to decrypt it. And then you get black, the block of text going, that's good text. That's, that's accurate. That's me. So these digital signatures are the currency of this entire system. And you can think of them realistically as signatures. They're just signatures. But signatures that can be checked, signatures that you can go and see how well does this line up with the signature on the back of Jeff's Visa card? Should I really believe this signature? That's true. Unless you know my private key, you can't reproduce my signature. To be a handwriting expert and mimic my signature, you now need to steal my private key. Nothing else is good enough. So now I can sign things that only I can sign. No one else can. I can't repudiate it. I said it. And anybody, literally anybody, can check it that I said it. So let's equate this back to routing. The problem is there's this anonymous data flying around that nobody understands where it came from or who said it originally. Why should I believe it? But if I can sign it, then all of a sudden you have some pretty powerful clues about that piece of routing data. Because if I attach my signature in there somewhere, I know that Jeff said this reachability information about that particular address and you know it, and I can't deny it. And if someone else says, hey, I can also reach 1.2.3 or whatever, some number, some IP address, the answer is, well, if it's signed, it needs to be signed with Jeff's signature because that's the only one the RIR is saying has got that address. If the signatures don't match, that's a lie. Whoa, that's pretty powerful. So let's talk about the first part of the routing problem, which is called route origination. Because what the routing system does is that you inject reachability into the system. Hi, I can reach this address. And then the system, the algorithm, promulgates that to the rest of the internet automatically. Hi, I heard Jeff and Jeff told me he could reach this address. You can reach that address through me to Jeff. And think about that murmuring 75,000 times all in a few seconds, you know, hi, 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 you know, and that's what happens. So if I can attach a signature to that origination, then you know that that address is real and that Jeff said it. But I can go one step further because I can actually say, and I only permit Robbie's network, autonomous system number 75, to advertise prime reachability. So if you see any route that says you can't see it through Robbie, you see it through someone else, reject it. Because I'm only getting permission for Robbie to originate that route. Now, that's the first part of the security framework. Route, origination, uh, attestation, authority, whatever your favorite word is, doesn't really matter. But if I can sign a ROA, route origination attestation, and promulgate around the planet, if you see a route that I was meant to have created, you can check that route against the authority in the ROA. So 
I don't know, 203.10.60 slash 24. I publish a rower that says only AS number 42 can advertise this route as its origination. So when you see an update for 203.10.60 slash 24 with an AS of 43, you know it's bad because there's no rower because I didn't sign one and I own that address prefix. Fix the problem? Sounds good, but what about performance? Well, we actually can exploit some of the value of, of BGP here, Robbie, to actually knock the performance problem on its head because I don't care about doing that test for every packet. I only care about it for doing it for every update about this prefix. That's the first thing. That's a big win because updates don't occur as often as packets, obviously. Secondly, I can almost do this offline with a dedicated engine, a rower engine that picks up all the published rowers around the world and creates a filter list. And routers are really good at packet filters. And what this packet filter says is if you see a routing update for 203.10.60/24 and it doesn't come originally from AS42, throw it out. Simple. Cheap, elegant, it's just a filter list. I use dedicated engines, problem solved. Let's all do this. I'm sold, but I'm sure there's going to be another but, isn't there? Oh, Robbie, I'm an evil person. And, and you have created your rower for this magic prefix 203.10.60/24. AS number 42, you're you're feeling pretty good. You've set up the letter sleeves and, and adorned yourself the impermeable coat of armor, but it is just letter sleeves. Because I'm a nasty person. And what I do is I create a fake route. I can reach this route, but you're not AS42. That's okay. I'm going to pretend that AS42 told me that. But it didn't. Well, you don't know. At the back, people who tell me things in routing aren't visible. It's invisible. That's my secret. So I assert a new route to 203.10.60.0/24, and yes, I heard it from AS42. Seriously, I didn't. But no one else can tell. It looks real. And so now, because I'm a shorter path, I'm a better path, everyone sends all their traffic to me, and I meant to send it to Robbie, but yeah, 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 Robbie, I'm not going to do that. I'm now you. Oops. Certainly for a horizon of the world where Jeff saying, I've got a better path, is plausible, believable, and if you compare all the other paths, they look worse. That's the first thing. And Robbie, you've been a bit lax. You've actually said, not only do I have a route for, you know, 203.10.60.0 slash 24, but in actual fact, I got given from the RIR a slash 22. And I'm going to set up an authority that says AS42 can announce any of the more specific addresses from that block. And there's one rule in routing that hasn't changed. More specifics win. So if you're announcing a slash 22 and I announce a slash 24, yahoo, I'm a winner. Go back to the big YouTube incident of 2011. 
So if I can, I can actually make a plausible, a believable, more specific, I win the prize. I am you. You can't stop me. Okay. So rowers are only half the story. You're only wearing half your clothes. The emperor is still half naked. And then we enter into, well, how can I stop this? Now we get into the next thing, which is the AS path protection. Because BGP actually leaves a snail trail of what happened. I told George. So I'm listed as telling George. George tells Robbie. So George says to Robbie, I'm telling you this, and Jeff told me that. Now, if Robbie, you tell, you know, Bob, then it's a path of Jeff to George to Robbie to Bob. And the more this route promulgates, you actually see a trail through the network, right? So-called AS path. Now, this is actually really useful because sometimes to figure out what's the better path, should I go through Bob or Carol? I pick the shorter one, the one that has the fewer intermediaries, and that's just the way BGP works. So that's really good. And secondly, it can work as loop detection. Because, Robbie, if you tell me the route that I told George, the AS path already contains my identity. Um, That's a loop. Sorry, I'll drop you. So AS paths are useful for metrics. They're useful for loop detection. But to stop me inventing stuff, we actually need to harden up that AS path. So when you receive a route that says, Jeff told George told you, You actually need to know that Jeff really told George and George is really telling you. Can you see where this is going? I've only got digital signatures. I've only got public-private key cryptography. But what I can do is not only associate addresses with keys, but I can associate network numbers, autonomous system numbers, network identifiers with keys. So when I send a message to George, I sign it saying I'm sending this to George with Jeff's AS number signature. And when George then sends it to you, Robbie, he signs across that with his own saying I'm sending this to you. Hey, roll back 15 minutes and you said even when you're going to the good place, decoding things has a cost. And it starts to sound like, Jeff, I've got a decode that I said it. And then inside that, I've got something that I've got a decode that you said it. And if it's Robbie, he's got to do that too. So it's no longer testing one thing that Jeff said. It's testing the thing Jeff said and the thing George said. And it sounds like the thing Bob and Carol said. There's a lot more testing going on here. Don't ever perform a full route refresh in this new world. You will only come back to us a week later. That's a lot of crypto to work through. That's difficult. But that's not, that's not the extent of this problem. The true extent of the problem is actually this thing called partial deployment. Now, we've met this before, and we actually met it 15 years ago when we moved from 16-bit autonomous system numbers to 32-bit, because you know IPv4 isn't the only thing that ran out. We ran out of autonomous system numbers. 
because 75,000 is bigger than 65,000, 16 bits, right? And so we actually performed a flying upgrade of BGP. Did everyone stop their routers and start them again on midnight UTC? Well, no. What we actually did was a very cunning plot, and we used tunneling in the transition. So there were folk who said, I can speak big AS numbers. There were folk who said, I can't. And so what we did was the folk who couldn't speak big numbers, we took all the big numbers in an AS path and changed them into one small number, 23456. So the big numbers became all one number, 23456. It preserved length. And it didn't matter about looping because in the small number world, you'd never loop on a big number because, you know, if the big number's looping, you need to be in the big number world to see it. But when you re-entered the big number world, how do you restore it? Opaque transitive attributes. So when I entered the small world, I encapsulated the big number AS path and put it in an attribute of BGP and said, look, don't interpret this, just carry it through to the other end. And when you re-entered the big number world, you reconstructed the AS path as it really was with big numbers. Wow, that's stunningly difficult. If you think this verbal explanation worked in about 30 seconds, you haven't understood it. Go back, listen to it again, think about it a lot, read some documents about it, and then you'll figure out it is stunningly brilliant. And it is. But this is the problem we get with AS path protection. Because if Robbie isn't doing it, then when he receives this update that has all these carefully, I signed over it, George signed over me, and then you receive it and you go, oh, what's this crap? When I tell my neighbors, I don't know anything about this, I'm just going to send them an update. Hmm. So what are you going to do? Now, we could take the whole two-byte, four-byte tunneling transition model and go, let's just snake this information through the bits that don't understand path protection. Wow, that doesn't work. Because if I'm an evil person, I've now got a playground to play in, all the unprotected parts, and I can do whatever I want. So when we have to deploy AS path protection, we can only make islands and we can't bridge them together. So what's the benefit of me protecting AS path? Well, everyone else on my island, yes. For the rest of the internet, Zip, nada, nothing. So the IETF went to a huge amount of effort to develop this wonderful AS path protection protocol called BGPSEC. Lots of RFCs, many heated discussions, lots of blood on the floor, lots of everything, and no deployment, and no prospect of deployment, no nothing, because it's hideously expensive to run, and it only works when everyone does it, and as long as not everyone is doing it, it doesn't really work because everyone else can exploit the holes and so you're no better off. And so BGPSEC is dying a death. And it's not just, oh, well, all we need to do is make a rule. The Internet Governance Council will tell everyone to run BGPSEC. I'm sorry, my router will melt. I'm sorry, BGP will melt. I'm sorry, you're telling me to kill the Internet for the sake of securing BGP? Yeah, right. Ain't going to work. It's dead. It ain't going to happen that way. 
So we have this technology that everyone needs to run it before it's useful, and it just can't work that efficiently. We can't make this happen. Oh, and by the way, routers need to have keys. Whoa, how do I get your keys? I attack your router. There's your keys lying there in the open because the updates are signed by the router. How secure are routers for crypto? No, not at all. <sighs> the cure is worse than the disease. Not only that, but it only protects the protocol, not the policy. What's the major problem we have these days? Fat fingers. What does fat fingers actually mean? Well, I'm a customer of transit providers George and Robbie. I give you money, you give me routes. I use both of you to get to places. This is fine. But I'm stupid. I've just made an error. I send all the routes I learned from Robbie to you, George, and some of them will look pretty damn good, and you will prefer them. But I'm not your transit provider, George. I'm your customer, and you're now sending a huge amount of traffic through me to get to places that you should know better. We've seen this happen again and again. Some poor old Mexican provider used uh, China Telecom as transit. You know, whoops, that was never meant to happen. And so you can protect the routing protocol, but you also need to protect the policy. Customers shouldn't transit transit routes. You know, there's a whole bunch of, if you will, unstated rules that say, don't be a dork in routing, that BGPSEC, even if we got there, won't stop you from doing. You can still be a dork even with BGPSEC. So it's expensive. It requires everyone to do it. It requires a flag day. Until then, it's useless. It's hideously expensive. You need better routers. You need more CPU. You need more secure routers. Feeling good yet? It's going to cost you a bomb. Let's just remember that. It's going to cost you a bomb because I'm going to get, come back to it. So there is another mechanism that the IETF is playing with called AS Provider Attestations, ASPA, that tries to sort of create partial topologies where every AS, in theory, says in the long run, that's my neighbour, and they sign it. And so now we have a filter mechanism that if I tell you all my neighbours and I sign it, then any lie about me has to also include a lie about my neighbours or the path's obviously false. In ASPA, I actually go differently and say, here's a list of all of my providers. So things have to appear in the right order. Will it stop people from lying? No, but you have, it bounds the way in which you can lie. You can only lie in certain ways. Sounds good? It sounds beneficial. Less bad. Sounds plausible. So let's go back a little bit and say, why are we doing this? Because routing's horrible. Routing can't be trusted. Now, is this a secret? Or have we known this since about, I don't know, 1980? Of course it's not a secret. Routing is nonsense. Routing's horrible. Routing doesn't work. So what do applications actually do? Well, why is that padlock on my website for my bank? What have the applications actually done in response to this problem? They've solved their problem as well as they can. So in actual fact, the reason why it's really hard to be Jeff 
is not because attacking routing is hard. Attacking routing is easy. But what you haven't got is Jeff's keys. So you can set up a site, www.potteroo.net, but unless you know my key, that site isn't secure. And as long as the erstwhile customer is doing HTTPS, and when the little error bar comes up saying, that ain't the real McCoy, do you really want to go there? And the answer is, no, well, no, I don't, I guess. Well, if you're using Chrome, it won't even give you the option anymore, thank God. It's kind of, that's not the right certificate, that's not the right address, do not go there. So we've solved this to the extent we can in the application world by saying, you might not be at the right site, but if that site can't deliver the right credentials with the web PKI, my browser isn't going to let you there. You're not going to be allowed to go there. Now, applications are spending money solving this problem for themselves. Okay. So I'm a network provider and I do all the whiz-bangery. I bring up this entire system and I go back to my service providers who are my customers going, I'm now running secure. I've spent a lot of money. You're going to pay me more money? <laughs> and, and the service provider platforms go, well, we're running PKIs. We're, we're, we've done all we need to do. No, I'm not going to pay you because you're not offering me anything that saves me money. I can't just go, well, I'm going to go back to straight old port 80. I'm going to drop all this stuff because you're doing routing security. It's all good. So I'm not going to do this work anymore. Yeah, right. Dream on. So applications and the application environment doesn't value anything that happens down there at the network level to the extent that they're willing to pay a premium. Interesting. What about customers? Use my ISP because I do routing security. Well, what does that actually mean? Because you're not the source of all truth. All the other 75,000 networks are the source of all truth. Well, yes, they're not doing routing security, but it's okay. You can trust me. I can trust you about what? Well, my networks. Well, what about everyone else's? Yeah, good question. So at some point, this doesn't actually add value to the consumer. Pay me more money because I'm secure. No, because it's a lie, because it's only secure when everyone's secure. So let's look at it from the ISP's perspective. What's the value proposition to do all this work? What's the value proposition to add complexity, to add operational requirements for expertise, i.e. more skilled operators? What's the requirement to have more moving parts, to protect keys, to add in a whole bunch of stuff into the routing environment, which is many ways to go wrong, right? And what's the payback? There's a long silence going on here because that's the tough question. And the answer really is there is none. Oh, you say, but I can also protect you from misdirection. I can protect you from denial of service through routing attacks. And the answer is, there are so, so many ways to take me offline. So many ways. And routing is but one. You can just send me a bunch of packets, sin attacks, 
DNS attacks, all kinds of attacks are effective in denial of service. Routing is just one more, not the only one. So you haven't caused me a solution to my DDoS problems. You just haven't. I think the stuff that you've said previously about the centrality of content moving into CDN networks and the absence of real requirements to use transit to get to places probably plays here too, Jeff, because in fact, most of the information customers, real people in the real world are seeking to get to doesn't require them to depend on a routing system to get there, does it? Well, that's the third part of this clue here, George, that most of the internet doesn't use routing anymore. We're solving the problem of horses and carriages in a world that's heavily populated by cars. And if the real problem is, is your engine electric or petrol? Routing security says, but think about the horses. It's just the wrong problem for the wrong century. Because yes, content has shifted into content castles, CDNs, and the castles are co-located at the edge of the network as close to possible to the customer, there is no transitive routing. My bank, your bank, everyone's bank, is now sitting inside CDNs co-located either at the edge of the customer's network or in certain cases, and we've certainly seen this with um, deployments in, say, in India, with Bharti Airtel, where those edge devices are inside the access network. There is no BGP. There is no external routing. And so applications, which is where the money is, are solving their problem themselves. They're spending their money, and they have the money, to actually address the problems with routing by saying, yeah, who needs routing? So in some ways, all of this stuff about we need to fix the BGP problem is actually old news. And the application folk heard that years ago, years ago, and said, okay, there are two ways I can fix this. I can wait for someone else to spend money to fix it, or I can co-locate my content such that it doesn't depend on routing. Option B looks pretty stunningly good. I'm not relying on others. I'm not even trying to get others to spend their money. I'm not relying on some grand internet poobah to assert that they, they govern the internet and create an edict over secure routing. I'm not waiting for that. I'm solving the problem. And so oddly enough, the new world that we're in, routing is becoming about as irrelevant as addressing. It doesn't matter anymore. When all the world actually relies on placing your content and services inside these small numbers of massively, massively constructed bunkers, CDNs, where everything is delivered from Amazon, Google, Cloudflare, Netflix, and just Microsoft, Azure, and not many others, Akamai. That's about it. Then who needs routing? Who needs it? And who needs to secure it? Well, if you don't need routing, routing security is kind of the pimple on, on the blister on the, on the, you know, it's so many levels of indirection. And, and the real question is, why do you think this is a problem we all need to solve? Or are you just in the historical preservation society trying to correct the anomalies of the year 1995? If this is a problem for your service, 
you obviously haven't picked up a clue and dropped your service into a CDN lately. Waiting for the world to secure routing, ha, you know, why? So we never expected to come here when we looked at this. And even when, I'll speak for myself here, George, and I won't implicate you, but when we thought about this problem way back in, you know, 2002 or something, we thought this was a problem worth solving. We thought this was really, well, routing really does keep up the internet and routing is hideously abused either unconsciously with fat fingers and sometimes deliberately, and that's really bad. But what we're finding now is that the folk who are victims of these attacks are really folk who haven't got a clue, really folk who haven't picked up on the message and actually smashed their material on their service back into a CDN and armor-plated that CDN, which is you know, the CDN's job. And realistically now, The only folk who are victims are folk who really haven't managed to pick it up and go, this is where we need to be for a secure network. And it's not secure routing. That's not part of the plot. It's actually about putting your staff into where everyone else is, those massively fortified, massively constructed content factories that actually do this work for a living and do a damn fine job. I'd say if there's a value in having addresses And that's become pretty unclear from the tone of the argument you're running. But if there was a value in understanding addresses, I think the thing we do to make sure we can say who has legitimate authority to say what's done with them isn't inherently bad. So I don't yet see a reason to turn off the machine that stamps, I can say what's to be done with the addresses. But there's the higher order question. Okay, so you can prove what you think you want to be done with addresses. You haven't yet sold me that there's a critical reason the world needs to know that to have reliable access to goods and services. And I think that's become a more apparent side of it. Maybe we were naive thinking we could fix a problem. We didn't understand the scale of that problem against real world problems. So let me introduce Quick into this conversation at this juncture. And Mark Nottingham, what's Mark Nottingham? What are you you had on ping a few weeks ago, Robbie? You mean Bruce Davey and Larry Peterson? Yep, yep. Martin Thompson and Mark Nottingham here in Australia, I'll mention, I'll shout out to them too, are, are deeply engaged in this area of looking at new transport protocols. And this is why I think Quick is really, really interesting. Because George is talking about the value and persistence of addresses. And Quick is a remarkable protocol because it uses a connection ID and dispenses with permanent addresses. What that means is that I can sit behind a NAT, for example, and have the NAT change my public address at will as frequently as it wants. And the server at the other end knows my packets came from me, Jeff, because they have the same connection ID, and that connection ID is sitting inside a quick encrypted envelope. I think you might want to call that connection ID a session ID, and suddenly you're back in a different world view of what networks are. Well, it is, but the point that I want to make is that in the extreme case, I, the client, can have my address changed on me almost once every RTT, and Quick will accommodate that. And in a small breath 
a leap of faith, the server can change its address agilely. And as long as I keep on sending packets to the current address, the connection ID is the thing that mattered, not the address. So addresses become ephemeral. Not only ephemeral session tokens, they become ephemeral tokens down at the level of a single transaction around trip time. So why do addresses matter? Whoa, we've just destroyed the internet. Strange that the internet's been destroyed, but the services haven't gone away. Right. The only true constant is the DNS. I cite Cloudflare, and I think Cloudflare is wonderful because they're free, and I'm a cheap bastard, right? So I can put my content on Cloudflare, and let's say you're on a mobile phone, which has got a NAT in front of it, and you can go to my web address here in Australia. Address A talks to address B. Now, you hop on a plane or even just walk across the road or pick up a different phone, and you go to my website, but you're behind a different NAT, so you've got a different address. But at the same time, the other side address could change as well. So it's almost the same service, the same DNS, but a different address pair. Fantastic. Addresses just don't matter. They're all self-relative. Because when we really wanted to scale up the internet and make it more secure, what we actually found is that most of our assumptions about the architecture of networks that came from 1980 don't scale and don't work. And unconsciously, we've got rid of them, all of those assumptions. There is no such thing as a static address anymore. You just look up the DNS. And it just doesn't matter what you get back. Why? Because the security associations of the DNS is actually the dictionary of truth. Nothing else matters. So addresses, ephemeral. It just doesn't matter. We don't care about that anymore. That's the way we scale. And to make scaling of content work, we replicate it all over the place and give it different addresses. just doesn't matter because that's the way we can make it bigger. And because we've now shortened the distance of me to my content, I can make this stuff go blindingly fast. So somewhere in this amalgam of CDNs, of quick, of all of that, we've dispensed with addresses, we've dispensed with routing, we've dispensed with transit, we've dispensed with almost everything that was a problem and ended up with a vastly cheaper network. I don't know about you, but I don't pay for search. I don't pay for a whole bunch of stuff. It's really, really cheap. It's unbelievably fast, unbelievably big, but it's not the internet we thought it was. And it doesn't rely on the bits we can't make work. It doesn't rely on routing security. Because if it did, <laughs> A, we wouldn't have an internet, or B, we'd have solved the problem. The fact that we haven't actually means it wasn't important. The only issue we're left with is that of a centralized internet, which we discussed in episode 23. Well, I'm now left with a different problem, Robbie, and George might be too, but if we've let him speak for that. I just wasted 10 years of my life working on a non-problem. Routing security didn't matter. It was an education, not a solution. Good science depends on people being prepared to stand up and publish negative results. If we're all acting like you only win if you get the positive result, it's bad science. So if it took 10 years for us to get to an authoritative negative outcome, I'm content as a scientist because good science is publishing negative outcomes. 
I think that makes me feel better. (laughs) On that note, I think it's time to wrap up this conversation until another day here on Ping or on the APNIC blog or in the community. Thanks, Jeff and George, for sharing your insights into the history of trust in the internet and where it has led us in terms of PKI and routing security. Uh, It's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Robbie. Thanks, George. Thanks, listeners. Thanks, Robbie. And thanks, Jeff. Thanks for a chance to participate in this one. And thanks for giving me a step up to try and occupy the role you've been in to this point. Uh, You're made for this podcasting business, George. To which, dear listeners, if you've got a story or research to share here on Ping, get in contact via email, ping at apnic.net or our APNIC social media channels. And remember to check out the new measurement at APNIC mailing list to discuss and share relevant collaborative opportunities, grants and funding opportunities, jobs and graduate placings, and or seek feedback from either community on your research and measurement project. And be sure to check out the APNIC website for all your resource and community needs. Until next time.